Sometimes the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. And thank you again for joining me here at the back of the range. I'm your host, Ben Adelberg. This is, holy cow, this is episode 20. Lots of great tournament wins over the weekend. Jason Day back in the winner's circle again for the second time this season on the PGA Tour. Bernhard Longer picked up another win on the Champions Tour. And on the amateur side, the team of Casey Dezenovich and Ronnie Davis picked up their first win at the Florida State Golf Association's two-man shootout at PGA National. Congrats to everyone. But the big win of the past weekend, clearly, Amelia Navoa. She won her age group. Got second place overall in her IMG Academy Junior World Qualifier. Amelia and her dad, Victor, are huge fans of the podcast. We couldn't be more thrilled to give her a shout out. Amelia, keep up the great work. I hope you all enjoyed episode 18 and 19 last week. Special thanks to Greg O'Mahony, who really promoted the hell out of the episode for us on all of his social media outlets. Got a lot of great feedback. If you liked that episode or a previous one for that matter, please share the podcast on your Facebook page, Twitter, Instagram. It really does go a long way. I'm getting a lot of texts and emails from people I haven't talked to in years. They're enjoying it. I hope you are as well. And remember, you know I like giving things away. I got some towels floating around here and maybe hats later on down the road. So if I see you sharing the podcast, I'll be sending something your way as a thank you. Don't forget, we are on Instagram. Check us out, the Back of the Range podcast. Our website, thebackoftherange.com. That's where all the episodes are. That's where you can link up to Stitcher and Overcast and all of the podcast providers. And remember, if you need to contact me for any reason, Ben at thebackoftherange.com. Keeping things a little bit close to home this week, our guest is none other than the president of the Florida State Golf Association. See, you thought I was going somewhere else. Steve Carter is just an impossibly nice person. He played collegiately at the University of North Florida, where they won a national championship. He played professionally for some time, and after regaining his amateur status, has become one of the finest amateurs in the state of Florida over the last 20 years. He's won numerous titles. He's appeared in multiple USGA championships at historic venues like Oakmont and Pebble Beach. But most importantly, he's a true gentleman of the game. He's active in growing the game the right way throughout the entire state of Florida. We have some great stories, some healthy debate in this episode, and I hope everyone enjoys it. So, Steve, thanks for joining us on our 20th episode here at the Back of the Range. I appreciate you having me, Ben. Look forward to it. No, thank you. Uh, absolutely thrilled to have you here with us, Steve. There are uh, tons of things we have to get into. Your your college days, winning a national championship, uh, playing professionally, getting your amateur status back, and all the great work you're doing with the FSGA. But let's start at the beginning. How did you get into the game of golf? Yeah, I uh, grew up here in Jacksonville, and my dad exposed me to the game. Uh, probably about 10 or 11 years old. I'm the youngest of three boys, and we were involved in every sport known to man. So, uh, golf wasn't a high priority, but something we did, uh, maybe on a Sunday afternoon, every now and then batted around a little bit. Um, and he was a, he was a decent player. I never got to see him play at a, at a significant level due to his health, but, um, he could put the lights out of it, but he's the one that exposed me to it and would drop me off on, uh, summer days and, uh, sort of gave me the, the passion, passion for it. It's really fascinating because there's there's guests that we've had on on the podcast that 
have the similar upbringing that you had in the game, which is actually pretty close to mine. I just kind of fell into it and play a little bit on the side. And then you have, you know, guys that had uh, fathers or mothers as teaching pros. And just from day one, they're, they're at the club and completely immersed in it. Did you ever have thoughts of, uh, you know, your friends that were really in, into golf from an early age? Do you think it would have gone differently for you if you would have taken that route? Or are you, um, did this, did this introduction to the game really kind of fit your personality? Uh, I think it did, you know, and I had no thoughts on playing golf as a primary sport, to be honest with you. It was, you know, basketball, baseball, football, the traditional the real sports. sports we all, what's that? The real sports, you know, the, 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 athletic, the, yeah, the, the, the real sports. sports. There you go. Okay. And, um, you know, my, my, my oldest brother played college basketball. My middle brother was a very good baseball player. I, I, played a ton of baseball from a very early age and that was probably my best sport but um you know life takes you down a different path but I really didn't hang out with kids that played golf um you know we weren't members of the country club until a lot later um so I didn't really hang out with kids and golf honestly wasn't as popular you know that as it is today and focusing on one sport so uh it was just something fun we did on the side um before four guys hanging out, dad and three sons. And, uh, it was, it was a great experience and a great intro. And I don't, I don't think my passion for the game would have been any different. Maybe could argue been, been less if I'd have just focused on that at an early age. So what was the typical game? Was it, was it you and your dad? Cause you, you were the youngest against your two older brothers or what, what was the standard game that you guys had? Yeah, that's typically how it played out in all sports. Um, you know, usually whether it was two on two basketball and one of my brothers would block my shot. So my dad would block theirs, uh, golf. We were all at all kinds of different levels. So I don't, I don't recall a specific game. I just remember it was really cool to get to drive the golf cart and, um, you know, maybe get a, get a soda and a hot dog or something like that. That was the, the highlight, but, um, we, we had some fun and there wasn't a whole lot of betting going on, but uh, we were all competitive and wanted to beat each other for sure. Well, it doesn't sound much better than that. I mean, just, you know, coking a dog at the end of a hot day of playing some golf in, in Florida. I mean, what else do you really need, right? Yeah, throwing a sweet tea and uh, maybe a Snickers bar there too. All right, there you go. So so when so when did, uh, when did baseball kind of get phased out? Because I, I, you know, I'm assuming you played in high school because you definitely played in college, so – when did baseball kind of phase out and then you started going on that path of, of, of golf? Yeah, it, uh, it happened to me when I was, I guess, 15. Uh, I got injured a couple times in the same area of the knee. I went through that weird growth spurt that we were all going through. Um, so some of the contact sports started to, uh, be limited and, started playing some junior events and just in the city of Jacksonville and had some fun with it. Uh, so it was 15, 16 ish, uh, when I really started just, just playing golf and wasn't playing anything else, uh, from a major competitive level. When did you start thinking about, okay, I want to maybe take it to one more level, see if I can play in college. How do you get noticed? If, if you really don't have a whole lot of a junior background in the game, how how did you get noticed and how did you play in college? You know, I, I probably didn't really get noticed. Um, I, I could shoot some decent scores for nine holes. And again, it, it, it's such a different era, era today 
in the access to tours. There were there was the AJGA, but we didn't have you know the financial ability to go travel and, and play all over the place. Um, and honestly, I wasn't good enough to be able to play at that level with you know the David Duvalls and, and those types. But um, you know, I, I was decent. I wasn't great, and um, I think the you know coming out of high school, playing some tournaments, playing you know a couple state events. Um, I started, I started to improve fairly rapidly, but my golf coach, which was my guidance counselor in high school, uh, had, had some college connections and had, you know, gotten my name out there in a few small circles, but, um, that, that wasn't on my heart and where I wanted to go. So I really didn't have the intent or the plan to play college golf in high school, uh, just sort of spawned from there. I don't think I've ever heard of a guidance counselor also being the golf coach. I've heard of like the, the, well, the history teacher and I've heard of that, but it seems like that's kind of a contradiction because a guidance counselor wants you to get your life together and make solid choices about your future. And golfers just kind of want to chase after the dream. That's kind of what we do. We're just always tinkering and working and just, we will do, you know, stop at nothing to improve our game. Um, did he ever tell you that? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I'll let you take from there. No. Well, I say golf coach was uh, just a title. Uh, Mr. Al was a great man. He knew nothing about golf. <laughs> However, he, he had did a valid, have he had a valid a, driver's license in a van, right? <laughs> he had a red Toyota truck that he would, uh, you know, get us from tournament to tournament. And um, also, by the way, he always had a Snickers bar. So. He was always a friend, but man, he was a great man. And they, I tell you, um, he was, he was a great man and, uh, he was an older gentleman. So, you know, he, he didn't desire to really keep up with us. He just got us to the first tee in time and made sure we, you know, we're, we're doing the right thing and was on, we're on the right hole. So, um, it, it, there wasn't a whole lot of coaching going on or guidance or swing instruction. Um, but he was, he was a good man. Well, there you go. Someone had to, someone had to look after your team. So, so you played your high school golf, and you you want to get off to college and go somewhere. What's what's the next step? What's your plan? I really only had one plan, and that was go to Florida State with with all my buddies, and, and that's what I did for a couple of years, um, which was a phenomenal experience. Made a ton of great friends. Was in a fraternity, having a blast doing the, doing that thing, and tried to walk on at Florida State. Uh, unsuccessfully the qualifying or walk-on experience was four rounds out at Seminole Country Club and uh, I recall playing fairly well there was probably 30 35 guys trying to walk on and the the current coach um, I won't mention his name but saw me hit two golf shots one was the first tee shot and he then he saw me hit a bunker shot at some point so uh, I think the process of of walking on was just something that they entertained to try to maybe find a diamond in the rough. And, um, but no one was chosen and, uh, really, really soured me on golf. I didn't play for quite a while and, um, just was doing my thing over, over for Yeah. I, I had a, I won't get into my, uh, similar walk on story, but, but yeah, I, uh, yeah, they, they kind of, uh, I think they did it as just a nice gesture to show that they're, they're open to the possibility, but I think the, the, you would have to absolutely destroy every one of the scholarship players to even get looked at. And then at that point who, who really knows, but, uh, 
but uh, but yeah. So you mentioned you had uh, you mentioned earlier that you had an interesting story about the walk on. Is there anything else that you uh, you get the message pretty loud and clear when they're not actively there and watching you play at least a couple holes? Oh, okay. I see so the the message the message was sent, and I knew you know three or four guys that were already on the team um, had competed in that with you know against them maybe here locally or at you know a state am or something. Uh, that year prior, that summer prior. So I felt like I could, you know, compete. And I was certainly wasn't asking for a scholarship, just a a chance to practice and improve and play. And I get it, you know, look, I didn't warrant uh, a look. So it it, it did make me hungry to compete against them on other occasions. So it all worked out. So you stayed at at FSU for for a couple of years. You kind of moved past the whole walk-on experiment um you're having a sounds like you're having a pretty much the typical college experience you're uh you know drinking mick ultras at uh, the frat house all the time and uh in, enjoying that uh how how did you you know why didn't you stay at fsu why didn't you graduate from fsu well one point of clarification i think it was like keystone light oh. or uh Milwaukee's best or something like that. Oh, just, um, that's brutal. <laughs> now I'm actually thinking about to when I was in college. I'm like, oh man. And then there's nothing worse um, than Zima. Who drank Zima? You didn't drink Zima, did you? Oh, uh, Bar- I did not. Bartles and James. Bartles and James. Uh, yeah. Well, no, that's that's when you're that's when you're 16 and trying to figure out a way to get anything to drink. So that's a little bit before college. True. The ladies like the Bartles and James, so yeah, good to have have the, access to those. There you go. So how'd you so how'd you move on from FSU? Do you remember? <laughs> I, I do. <laughs> I do. Um, it it just so happened at uh, after my second year, actually during that summer, uh, one of my actually friends who was only four years older than I took over the golf uh, position at UNF and uh, offered me a chance to come back and play and sort of earn my way in turn and into a scholarship if that's the way it played out. And so I gave it some thought and really probably took a little bit too long of time to make a decision. But at the 11th hour, I decided to give it a go and leave Florida state, come to UNF. I had to go back and live at home for a semester because I had delayed my decision so long and moving from a fraternity house of uh, 44 guys living in a house to going back home was a little bit of a adjustment, but, uh, great parents, so it all worked out. And uh, you know, again, had the ability to come and, and play with a, a great group of guys. UNF was an NAI school at the time, not tremendously well known, but uh, John Brooks t- took over the program and just uh, turned it into something awesome. And now UNF, just to clarify for people listening, that's the University of North Florida. And where are they located again? Uh, here in Jacksonville, the Fighting Ospreys. Okay, so, there you go. Yes, now full Div- Division One and uh, very very solid program. I think. Uh, let's see. Recently, uh, was it? Is it Kevin Phelan? Is it Sean Dale? Our our alums there. <clears throat> All those, yes. Yeah, yeah. Phelan got into the. He's doing. He was doing pretty well in the Open in the uh, in in the U.S. Open a, a couple of years back, but uh, but those are the two names I remember. Um, what are some other names that uh, that still ring a bell from your days back there at UNF? Well, we had uh, we had, again. I mentioned we had a great group of guys. There was uh, a, a guy that transferred from the University of Florida, Jamie Burns. He was our number one player, and just 
I mean, what wants to compete at everything and uh, really taught me how to practice. I never, I never knew how to practice. And even though I would spend a lot of time with it, you know, practicing the right way uh, makes a difference. So uh, he was our number one player, um, a gentleman from Sweden, or actually two guys from Sweden uh, who were tremendous guys and players, uh, gentlemen transferred from University of Central Florida. And then they also had a good nucleus, two or three guys that were already here playing, Rob Ireland um, and a few other guys, Stephen Motson, um, Lars Haglin. Just, uh, so we, we formed a really, really good team, tight-knit group. Um, I'm still great friends with all those guys today. And it was, uh, it was a really, really cool time uh, in my life and, and very fond memories. And we played some really good golf. Uh, one thing that John Brooks did was he got us into really premier tournaments, Division One tournaments. So here's this little NAI school, you know, playing against the, uh, you know, the Floridas and the Alabamas and the Florida States and North Carolinas, uh, which ultimately made us a lot better players and a lot better teams. So um, that was a huge component uh, to our success. So you mentioned, and and I caught a bunch of things you just said right there, and kind of gonna. You know, ask you a couple of these things uh, uh, later down the line, but you mentioned learning how to practice. A lot of people that, you know, either played college golf or people that, you know, see these co- college golfers coming up now, especially with, you know, we have a lot more TV coverage, you know, we we have the U.S. AM is on Fox Sports now and Golf Channel obviously is putting a lot more college tournaments uh, on TV. But you mentioned learning how to practice. Give me like, let's say there's no tournament and you're not traveling at all, and you're staying on campus or you're staying home, give me what the typical week looked like for you. I mean, I'm assuming you went to a couple of the classes, but, you know, let's not get crazy. So, um, but Yeah, it was amazing when I transferred, my, my grades went up um, to UNF from Florida State. But From a large a, school a to a small week. school. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Shocker. All right, so give me, give me a typical week, what that looked like and what your practice sessions were like. Yeah, a typical week was, uh, you know, we all of our classes were in the morning. Um, and, you know, being a premier athlete, you know, you get the pick of the litter. Uh, but kidding, obviously. Um, no, no, no. All like, the classes like were in the morning. <laughs> all the classes were in the morning. And then, you know, I would personally, that first semester, I'd just stay on campus. And then we would either have a structured either qualifier or practice. And if we were practicing on our own or as a team, that would really dominate the entire afternoon and then take you into the evening. Um, structure wise, we, you know, we worked out a couple mornings uh, during the week and, you know, that could be running as a team or, um, you know, lifting, doing weight training, things like that, which in the early nineties was a little ahead of its time. But uh, it was, you know, a lot of competition, a lot of, a lot of playing, uh, a lot of short game work. And, you know, if we didn't have qualifying there, it would be just game after game around the short, you know, the short game area, you know, playing points games for Cokes or whatever. And, um, and just getting that competition and um, also improving, but just an enormous amount of time in, in the short game area and, learning how to use your wedge, hitting high shots, low shots, buried lies, um, anything imaginable. You mentioned uh, your, your coach got you into these uh, these D1 tournaments against uh, you know SEC teams like Florida and, and Alabama. What was your mindset going into those tournaments? Not only, I mean, 
do you know how your coach was able to do that? And once you got in there, did that change anything for you guys going into those events? Well, I can tell you part of how he did it is he started hosting a tournament here in Jacksonville in March. And it originally started at Queens Harbor. Now it is uh, the John Haight Mercedes-Benz Classic at Sawgrass Country Club. So, you know, a lot of these premier schools uh, still may be in some cooler weather in March. So the opportunity to come play down in Florida, spend three, four, five days and, you know, get your team ready for the ready for the uh, spring season it was appealing. So as a favor, we got invited to some of these other tournaments. So uh, that was a huge thing that he did and to have the foresight to do that and just the relationships with the coaches in general. But, you know, once it, it really started feeding off itself as we had success and, you know, I remember us, we won over at Tiger Point in uh, Pensacola, which was uh, Alabama's host tournament. And, you know, once you have some success and certainly win an event, it uh, it wasn't uh, a shock to see us, you know, get invitations into other, other events. Well, you mentioned success. Uh, you guys won the NAIA National Championship in, in 91 and then uh, and then 93. Did, did it really sink in? Did you know you guys were that good? Like in 91, when you got, did you have any idea? I mean, obviously in 93, just, I was assuming you guys are just rolling into that thing with a lot of confidence, but uh, I mean, you're NAIA school. You, how'd you feel in 91? Did you think you were going to do it? Well, I, I didn't feel as great cause I didn't get to go. Um, but it, that was probably a little more unexpected. Uh, we had a really good team, but, uh, I know there were a couple other teams that were probably favored, but um, you know certainly in '93 we were we were we were heavily favored, and um, certainly uh, we we delivered on on being heavily favored. Yeah, you. Uh, I'm looking at the stats here, and I was able to pull up some of this. This is, I mean, you had four All-American selections. That's yourself, uh, Sandy Davison, Chris Tutin, and is it Tutin or Tutton? Tutin, yeah. Tutin, yeah. So you have. So you have four current titleist guy, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So you have, you have so you have four NAIA All American selections: Chris Tootin, Sandy Davison, Jamie Burns, and yourself. You guys win the team, uh, you know, the, the team portion by, uh, you know, fifty five strokes. And then uh, I'm assuming you know this about yourself, but you actually still hold the record, uh, lowest thirty six hole individual total. You're at one thirty four that had been just a ridiculous week. I mean, give me, give me a story about that week other than the great golf, but I'm, I'm sure you must remember that very, very well. Yeah, it, it was a, it was a blast. And I remember us getting in the van, heading back to the hotel after the first round. And I think we shot 13, 13 under as a team up rings a bell. And, um, our coach, John Brooks said, all right, boys, good job. Beat it tomorrow. And, um, we came out and shot one better the next day, 13 or 14 under. Um, so it was just, it was an incredible week. We had a, an unbelievable time. Of course, we were here at home at the Valley course at Sawgrass. So that certainly helped. So during this championship, you know, you guys are winning, you're running away with this national championship, uh, you know, borderline unfair to the other teams. Um, and it's not an easy course. This is at the, uh, the, the Valley course at, at TPC. Um, I mean, this is a challenging course. Now, you're, you're round. You're, you shot 67, 67, 78, 73. 
Um, what uh, do you remember what happened during the round where you shot 78? I mean, uh, did you guys kind of go out a little too late the night before? Uh, did you forget your shoes? What, what happened with the 78? No, we were pretty well monitored. So there was, uh, no shenanigans going on the night before, but I, uh, I don't know if I've ever disclosed this before, but I had cleaned out my bag, uh, the night prior and forgot to reload on golf balls and, I ended up only having a sleeve of balls in my bag uh, that third round, two of which I lost on the front nine. So not saying that was the sole reason for the 78, but it certainly added to the anxiety level uh, and having to play the whole back nine at the Valley, which there are some uh, holes with a lot of water on it. And thankfully I'd survived, but I do remember uh, my brother and my parents being out there and I, I told my brother or, uh, told someone that I was really low on ammunition and I think they were they're hunting around trying to find some uh, some Titleist golf balls for me but thankfully I didn't need it and you have to and obviously if you run out of golf balls you can't put a card in so that means that your score is automatically going to be the one that isn't counted so if one of your other teammates uh, now that 78 probably that didn't get counted did it I don't think so okay I don't think so so that, uh, yeah, it sounds like that wasn't even a fair fight with all the uh, teams coming into your backyard and then you just smoke them by 55. That was your senior year, is that correct? That is correct. Okay, so that's how you you, you go out uh, as a national champion. Really can't do it much better than that. And then after, so after college, I'm guessing you're coming to that realization like, okay, what am I going to do? And you decide to play professionally for a little bit. Is that correct? I did. I tried to give it a go. I had, um, you know, I had improved pretty rapidly, um, in my time at UNF and, you know, became a lot more consistent. And I was always, a, a the type of golfer that could make some birdies, but, uh, early on, I was the guy that was going to throw in a, a big number or two that would damage the score. But, uh, you know, I had, I had a desire to see how good I could be and, was fortunate enough that uh, my parents were able to help out and get me get me going and um, played for about a year and a half and it was an unbelievable experience. Uh, played some of the Florida mini tours and played the Hooters tour for about a year and a half and traveled and, and saw some unbelievable sights and made some unbelievable relationships that I still have today and um, it was a it was a great great learning experience. So these mini tours, you know, today everything is online. You could pay for these events online. You you can get, you know, hook up your, uh, you know, checking account to a PayPal account and everything is just very, very transparent. It's run very, it's, it's pretty seamless. If you have, if you have a smartphone, then you have your own office with you and you can handle your, your entry fees and things like that. Uh, what were, what were the mini tours like back then? Um, you know, we're talking, I guess we're talking about like 94, 95. Um, Correct. So, I, I can't, I, I mean, I, I imagine just the characters you're running into on these tours are just, just absolutely nuts. I mean, it sounds like you're pretty much the, the typical, Hey, I just got out of college. I'm not going to get a real job yet. I want to give this a shot. There's gotta be some, some wild people that you're running into. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it was a, it was a quite a mixture. I'll tell you that. And that, that was part of the intrigue. And, you know, as you uh, meet people and learn their story and whether it's, you know, a guy that's sort of living in his van and he's got his wife with him and they, they're, they're all in, man. Everything they have is in that van and they're traveling week to week. And, 
um, or, you know, the guys that maybe have uh, access to more things than you do and uh, watching their program and, and how they operate. And um, it, it was an interesting mix, to say the least. And, you know, every week it was 168 guys uh, at the time that had paid $500 per tournament uh, from an entry fee. And you're playing for $100,000, which is the total purse, 15000 to win. And, um, you know, so you had to play really well to make any money at all. I think maybe 20th place was the break-even. Um, and that's if you stayed at the Motel 8 and ate Taco Bell every night. But, um, you know, it was, it was a great experience. We went to some really um, interesting places and, but the relationships that I made and what I learned about myself and learned about my game was invaluable. So you, you mentioned you're, you're bouncing around the Hooters tour and obviously mini tours, just, you know, the, the, the stories out of these, these tours are just infamous, just people just living out of their cars. They're scraping money together. Uh, just to just to eat, and you know, you got six guys to a room. Uh, give me just one of the the characters that you saw uh, on the mini tours. Just thinking to yourself, man, I don't I don't know how this guy's doing it. I don't know where this guy is going to end up. I mean, there had to have been a lot of guys there that fit that mold. So so give me a good story about a guy out there that you just that, that still you remember to this day. Yeah, well, I'm, I remember a ton of guys, but uh, one guy in particular that uh, I spent a decent amount of time with is a guy named Brian Contact. And um, what a great golf! He game. was, yeah, I think it was K O N T A K. Unbelievable player. He's he's from Arizona. Could hit it a mile, but he was just he was a wild man. And um, I remember he would always. Um, base his dinner decision on how he played so if he played really well he went to eat somewhere nice if he didn't play well he went to taco bell or or somewhere like that and um he was just a prankster man he would always have you know be trying to pull one over on you or if you're in a group setting he'd do something to embarrass you and uh just full life ton of fun um cool to travel with but great player not always real serious but uh uh, really, really good guy. and like to have a ton of fun. I think that sounds like just about everyone else, uh, just everyone on the, uh, on the mini tours. Uh, I, I, <laughs> it just, I, I don't see how that, I guess the handful of guys that really get in there and then you got to move on quick. I, I can't imagine that you can last too long. Forget about the finances, but it just doesn't seem like it grows a, a tremendous work ethic. I mean, at some point, like you, you can't spend, I mean, how many years can you really spend on the mini tours and think you're going to make it? Yeah, great point. Great point. But there were, you know, there were guys in their, you know, mid forties at the time that were still, you know, trying to make it wow. and you, you applauded them. And that, that was one of the things in my decision. I didn't want to try to, you know, be that guy that was struggling and still trying to, still trying to make it at a, at a later age. So. Uh, I applaud them still to this day. And some of them were our tremendous players and you, know, you never know when some of these guys are, you know, are going to get a break. I had, uh, you know, thinking about some of the guys that were playing out there at the time, you know, like Sean McKeel and Scott McCarron and Brian Gay, Craig Perk, some of those guys that obviously have had a ton of success and continue to have success. 
but you don't necessarily see it right at that moment. And, um, but they stuck with it and, and figured it out. Did you ever play against some guys that are actually still competing on the PGA tour or maybe the champions tour? Oh yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of guys that are still, still have some status, especially on the senior tour. But, uh, I remember, uh, in Louisville playing with Steve flesh and that's where he was from. So, uh, played with him, I think on, on Saturday and, uh, he had, he had quite the following. Uh, I did not, but, uh, it was, it was fun <laughs> to be a part of <laughs> and, uh, just sort of witness how he did things. And obviously he's gone on to do, do some great things. Um, so yeah, played, played with a lot of, a lot of good guys. Um, the, the Joe Durant, uh, those type of guys that are still out, uh, making a lot of money on the, on the senior tour and, and doing very well. And you actually had a little bit of run in with, uh, with Gary Nicholas. So I know Gary made it to the PGA tour, um, and you know, had some success before, uh, regaining his amateur status, but you played a lot with him as well. Yeah, he was playing, uh, you know, down in, down in South Florida, we, there was a Hooters event down in, uh, down at Bear Lakes. And I, I remember being paired, uh, I was in the group behind Gary and I think we were both playing well and, um, obviously being down in, uh, Palm beach County, um, Papa bear was out following him and playing, playing right behind him. You know, Jack was around every green as we're hitting in and it felt like he was analyzing every shot I hit and it was always in the back of my mind, but, uh, you know, obviously great, great to be part of that. And anything that the Nicholases are involved in is usually, usually pretty good. So sure. good, good learning experience. And I just, I just, I always remember, uh, Jack's presence and it happened again several years later, um, after we both were amateurs down at Jupiter Hills in the state amateur, Florida state amateur. And I was paired behind Gary again, I think on Saturday and again, Jack being, um, you know, at the tee box, if we were jammed up and coming up to a tee where there was a weight or around a green and again, just they're great people, both, both him and, and Barbara and, uh, pair, played with Gary in a mid-am a few years ago at Loxahatchee and, and Barbara followed us all the way around 18 holes. And I just remember myself thinking, how cool is it that, you know, the wife of the greatest golfer of all time is out falling around some, some mid-am, you know, hacks, if you will. And, um, I remember talking to her and explaining to her about, you know, my mom and how she always followed me when it was convenient for her to do that. And, she looked at me and said, you know, you never stop being a mom. <laughs> yep. That's awesome. So just great family and uh, always obviously love uh, being around them and, and being associated with them. Well, you're you're competing on the mini tours. I know there's a lot of people listening that possibly romanticize that notion of chasing your dreams to reach the PGA Tour. But you were kind of coming to an end of it. You had a different... Uh, kind of had a different taste in your mouth about uh, professional golf and competing. Was that pretty much what caused you to make the decision to, to maybe give that up and then transition back into amateur golf? What was the moment that really caused you to make the turn? Well, it, it wasn't a sudden ending. Um, it was, I had really taken a lot of the fun out of the game. I had made it work, which we all know is uh, not what we want to do in a, in a game, even though that was trying to make it my livelihood. And my intent was to just take a little break and get away, decompress and try to, you know, 
try to figure out what the next step was intent on playing some more. And I, I found that when I, when I got back home and backed away from the game, uh, I was also fortunate that I grew up in a family business. So I was able to sort of come back in and, and, and work and make some money and had a girlfriend and liked the idea of having some stability and also found that I played a lot better when I was, when I was having fun. So, um, it wasn't an immediate thought that, uh, Hey, I'm done with this. Um, but over time, over the series of months and certainly over a full year, I had decided that, Hey, I don't want to, I don't want to pursue that anymore. Our family business was, was growing rapidly at that time as well. So it was fun to be fun to be part of that. So you, you get done playing professionally. And as you said, you just kind of like the stability of, of being home and, and having the, you know, kind of building it more your, your career uh, outside of golf. So you didn't really play much for, for several years after that. I mean, we're talking, uh, I mean, I'm just kind of guessing that your age is going to be around, you know, like your, your mid to late twenties, you really didn't play all that much. Is that correct? I did not. And that, that does sort of tie in with our, again, our family business, which was going through enormous growth at the time. So we were, uh, both my brothers and I had aunts and uncles and, um, certainly my dad. So we spent a ton of time, uh, in the business and, and we had a ton of fun too. We traveled a lot. Um, we worked hard and played hard, but I, I did not play much golf during that period. That is, that is correct. And what's and, the, and what's the family business? I'm sorry. Uh, we were a welding supply distributor at the time, and we had uh, 14 locations throughout the southeast. And um, my dad was a sales guy and, and sort of jumped on every opportunity to grow and then left left it up to the, the boys to figure out how to manage it. So oh, that's fun. Thanks, we Dad. Were, yeah, we were, <laughs> we were very busy, and um, it, it was a great time, fun time, and, and learned, learned a lot, too. Very cool. So the game does get its hooks back into you at some point, though. So it looks like you're regaining your amateur status uh, around 1999. And I guess, you know, just looking at the, at the stats and looking at what you accomplished uh, at, at, with Florida State Golf Association events and, and some USGA events, I mean, you know, you've played in six, six of these USGA events, and your, your three USAMs are – I mean, you know, USGA, USGA always does great with their venues, but man, you go 99 at Pebble Beach, 2000 at Baltusrol, and 03 at Oakmont. I mean, those are arguably the top three that you can, if you pick three of them out of a hat, that's, those are the top three you can pick. Um, I mean, how exciting was it to get back into to high level tournaments? Yeah, it was, uh, it was unbelievable. And um, it, it did, sort of validate my decision and the path I've been on with golf that, Hey, you can still have a ton of fun. You can still be competitive. And, um, so I felt, I felt rewarded in that standpoint because I'm sure I was never going to play in the AT&T, um, Pebble beach open or, you know, at Oakmont and to get access to earn your way to playing a champion, a USGA championship on those golf courses was, was just phenomenal. A little bit overwhelming. Uh, Pebble was uh, just a just a dream, and just being out there was fun. And uh, the course was set up ridiculously hard in in preparation for the 2000 Open that was going to be out there. They they we were test dummies for them, 
And, um, but it was a phenomenal experience. And I mean, can you even play up to your potential in a situation like that when you're at, when you're at the USAM, when you're at, when you're at Pebble or even Oakmont, I mean, are you truly in your typical, uh, tournament mode or are you just kind of a, a spec, uh, you know, kind of there as a spectator almost not to say you didn't have the game to compete, but you, you understand what I'm saying, right? Absolutely. I can tell you, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't prepared. And I think the only thing that, I mean, it's all experience and here you are, here I am at Pebble and I've got, you know, my brother's caddying for me. My parents had come out and none of us had ever been there and certainly not to play a, a tournament like that stature. And, uh, we just, we had a ball, but it, you know, you're, you're, you're overwhelmed just from the sights and the beauty of the place and the history um, a, a funny story about that event is I had to start on the 10th hole at Pebble. And if you've ever been out there, that is basically on the cliffs of the Pacific ocean and a tremendously hard driving hole. Um, so I remember just obviously being, being nervous and, um, my first, uh, tee shot in a USGA championship found its way onto the beach at, uh, uh near the Pacific ocean. But, um, you know, I think you can play well in spurts and those types of championships just come down to being able to manage your emotions and, um, you know, handle difficult conditions and being able to, you know, make a bogey when you mess up, not, not worse than bogey. Well, I, uh, I've, I only have one, uh, USGA on my resume, nowhere near what you have on yours. And I'm just, I, I still can't get over the fact that you had those three courses, um, if you had to pick one to play every day, which one would that be? Of those three? Sure. Wow. Um, probably Pebble just because of the scenery. And which one at the time did you think was the hardest? Oakmont. Yeah. Everyone mentions how difficult Oakmont is. Um, and that's the one that uh, Flanagan won that one. I mean, did you did you get an idea when you were at these tournaments just by looking at the players, whether in practice rounds or the people that you played uh, played against? Did you get any idea of anyone there that really stood out at and either one of those uh, uh, USAMs? Did you see some guy, some someone there that you're like, okay, I'm not at that level. This 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 one is clearly going uh, onward and upward after this. Yeah, um, the the O three tournament at Oakmont, I played with a young man named Brock McKenzie, who was an All American at Washington. Um, I think he's still playing professionally, but just the, the sound when he hit the ball and his touch around the greens uh, was was phenomenal. It was fun to watch him play. Uh, played with Hank Keeney uh, in an event. Uh, you know, just a, it's just a different level. Uh, not that you can't compete with them, uh, you know, on a given nine or a given day or even a, a given tournament, but the consistency and the, the the ball striking over time is just at a different level. So again, you know, you're you're playing at these these just institutions here for for the U.S. Amateur. You have you have Pebble and you have Baltusrol and uh, you have Oakmont. Um, actually, all three uh, major championship sites for for. Mr. Nicholas. So there's a little bit of trivia there. That must be a nice uh, thing to know about, uh, about that. So tell me a little bit about Oakmont, uh, about your start at that tournament. 
Yeah, so a couple couple things. Uh, first of all, my one of my business partners had come up to caddy for me, and which was awfully nice. Uh, he did. He was not able to make the practice round at Oakmont, so he had no idea what he was walking into. Even though I, I tried to explain to him, but uh, you know, like like me, he was also a little nervous. And the first tee at Oakmont, which is right by the main putting green in the clubhouse, and he's got his caddy bib on, and he's grabbing everything known to man: uh, pencils, tees, uh, yardage markers, scorecards, uh, everything that he can stuff into his caddy bib. And so we. Uh, we go off and we play and we've played the front nine and we get around to 16, which is a lengthy part three. And there's a, a really long wait. So we're, you know, just milling around and, and just chatting and he's going through his caddy bib and pulling out some things, sort of cleaning up a little bit. You know, we only got a few holes left and he pulls out a scorecard and it was one of the pre-printed scorecards for the group behind us. Uh, for George Zeringer. Oh no! <laughs> Zeringer's won the U.S. Medium too. He's not. He's not a guy that that's just a tourist at one of these events. He's a stick. He's won. No doubt. No doubt. He's a serious serious golfer. So, um, I mean, I immediately started laughing, and then he he asked if he should go give it to him, and I said, absolutely not. Oh, so oh I can only. Oh, you should have said yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I I can only imagine the uh, USGA officials uh, going to get the stuff for the group behind us and not having George Zeringer's scorecard ready. Uh, so lesson learned there. But uh, he also I mentioned him not being at, at Oakmont for the practice round uh, on the very first hole, which is a which is a really hard hole. Uh, the green slopes tremendously from front to back, and I had left it just sh- just short of the green. It was puttable. And, um, again, him not being there, he had no idea of the speed of the greens. So I hit this putt and it was probably 40, 45 feet. And I hit the putt. I said, Whoa, he said, go. And, uh, that was sort of how the relationship went, uh, throughout the day. Uh, I think the putt went 10, 15 feet by <laughs> and I, I four putted to start the tournament and, uh, tossed the putter to him. After number one, you walk across the Pennsylvania Turnpike, and I was obviously a little hot under the collar. And by the time he caught up to me, he uh, basically said, "Hey, bud, don't ask me what these drinks do anymore." So, solid, great way to start. Solid great way to start the USM. I mean, I mean, solid partnership right there. That's yeah. Uh, so, well, hey, at least you made it there. You made it to Oakmont. I mean, that's a hell of an accomplishment there. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, you might need to get a new caddy uh, uh, now if you uh, get back into another usg event is is he getting a call or or no uh he would he actually caddied for me at the mid-am up in uh, long island oh okay and, um, so you just you really don't think that the tournaments are hard enough you just want to kind of put yourself really behind the eight ball with uh just uh with 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 a bad caddy all right well you know so you you move on past the usams and you're you you're old enough to to play in the U.S. Mid-Ams, and that was, let's see, you had 05 at the Honors Course and 2010 at uh, Atlantic Golf Club. Um, how different is a U.S. Mid-Am over a USAM? just the general vibe and feel of that event? It's much different. And, you know, for the most part, the guys at the Mid-Am have 
somewhat accepted their role and responsibilities in life. You know, most of them have, uh, a lot of them have families, uh, obviously have stable careers and, uh, it is just a totally different vibe. The, the USAM is, um, it is like, I assume like a US open, just everybody's there for one purpose, try to win, uh, very structured and rigid. And at the US mid-am, you know, guys are, sitting back, having a beer, chatting, hey, tell me about your family, tell me about your careers, um, creating partnerships, and um, it's just a totally different vibe that, you know, being uh, through both sides, uh, certainly enjoyed both of them, but the U.S. Mid-Am has just got a, it has a totally more, you know, relaxed feel. And I would imagine that the uh, the U.S. state team that you played on, so that's basically each state golf association selects uh, three players, and I assume that it's different qualification um, uh, specifics for each uh, state. But so you're on that team in '05, um, and that's kind of a that's a different event as well. That's kind of along the lines of what the four ball is, because you know the the amateur obviously has the the prize at the end of the tunnel that you know that getting into the Masters and the U.S. Open and the U.S. Mid Am has that as well. But the U.S. State team doesn't have that, so. What was that experience like? How much different was that than any other USGA event? It, it was a little weird, to be honest with you, because, you know, you didn't see everyone uh, in one central location. There were split golf courses, uh, split tee times, and um, it, it was still, a, I mean, a, a great event and had a ton of fun. And the, the team environment in the USGA is certainly totally different, as you mentioned. But, uh you're paired with two other states during that day, all depending on how you play, uh, determines, you know, what time and sort of what wave you're in. But, uh, it, it was a great experience and true to the USGA, the way they set up the golf courses and, uh, they make, they make you earn it. And, and who was on that team with you? I believe that was, uh, Rick Wolf and, uh, Kelly Goss. There you go. Those are a couple of legends in, uh, in the FSGA ranks. Um, no doubt. Oh yeah. So I'm just, yeah. Also, we mentioned the FSGA. You're, you're very involved in the Florida state golf association and you're, you're on their advisory board. You know, a lot of the, um, you know, when I, when you look at these state golf associations and what they do, obviously you think about the tournaments that they put on and also growing the game for the juniors and, and Florida has a great junior tour, what does and that and that's more the tournament staff, the the directors and the the tournament uh, directors and planners and things like that. What does an advisory board do? Like, what are your responsibilities throughout the uh, with the FSGA? Well, that, that is a great question, and I will uh, make a, a clarifying point. As of this uh, coming year, I'll actually uh, be the president of the FSGA. President of the FSGA? Do you get like, you know? They pad your handicap. You, you get to kick the ball out get, of the rough. I mean, what do you get for this? <laughs> you get uh, you get nothing, oh, but okay. uh, uh, maybe maybe a little better seat in heaven. I hope. But okay. Um, well, presidents get lots of respects. So you'll be fine. To answer your question, the FSGA does uh, so much more than just run tournaments. Um, we we obviously do run tournaments for all age groups, whether it's juniors and whether you're, you know, nine years old now, um, all the way through, you know, super seniors, women. Um, if you want to play in a net event or if you want to play in one of the premier championships, I think we've 
the FSGA ran 605 days of competition last year. So, you know, obviously multiple tournaments going on at one time, but the FSGA also uh, handles things like course rating. Um, you know, when a course is either new or is renovated, and I believe every seven years it has to be re-rated. So going through that process, all that funnels through the FSGA. Um, very active in, obviously, the handicapping side through the USGA and Gen. Uh, supporting all the clubs that uh, offer that and run their own tournaments, so the, the club support is a huge is a huge thing. And then just ultimately benefiting golf and everyone in Florida that plays golf. So uh, it's a it's a great organization, uh, great folks in in that organization, great leadership, um, and it's been fun to be part of. So you're going to be president. So if uh, so, so what are your um, what are some things that you want to accomplish in the next? Now, how long is the term? Is it is it two years, four years? How's two it? years. Two years. Okay. So two you're, years. So you're going to be so and and can you get reelected? I mean, do we need to start raising money for your reelection campaign, or is this or you just draw your? Or, or they just drew your name out of a hat, didn't they? That's what they. Okay. They did. All right. They so, did. I, yeah. So you got two years. Give me. Have you thought about what you would like to see? what you'd like to accomplish in, in the next two years? Like what's something that you can look back on and say, man, I'm really, I'm glad I went after that. I'm glad we were able to get that done. You know what? That is, that's a great question, but it's a hard question because the FSGA is in such a phenomenal position right now. Um, you know, everything that has been done over the last really decade or even longer, uh, has gotten, the FSGA where it is now and, and certainly the growth of the game in the junior area. Uh, we merged the women's association several years back. So it is this you know, total consolidated look at the game of golf in Florida. So it's hard to say, Hey, I want to try to improve in, in one of those areas with that said, um, you know, there are, there are opportunities, um, you know, continuing to serve clubs in, in all of Florida uh, in a little better manner and, you know, better communication. And, uh, certainly you can always run more tournaments or run them, run them better. Uh, so as long as the focus continues to be on, on the game and how we can improve it, I think we'll be fine. Part, part of my role is to not mess it up. That's probably the biggest thing I can do. Yeah. That's, I mean, there's, that's not a bad goal to have. That's not, that's not bad. So let me throw this question out to you. I just, you know, you mentioned that you play professionally and you got your amateur status back. Um, you know, there's mid ams kind of fall on both sides of the of the spectrum with that. Most of the mid ams are either lifelong amateurs, uh, never played uh, professionally whatsoever, and then we also have a lot of these reinstated amateurs. I think the statistic from last year's U.S. Mid-Am in Atlanta, I think it was 40% of the field were were reinstated amateurs. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be the president of the Florida State Golf Association in charge of all these tournaments for Mid-Ams. What's your stance on that? Do you think it's fair that someone that played uh, professionally, maybe even, you know, a, a, you know, a a web.com, a PGA tour, tour player, do you think that they can just easily get their status back and then they're competing against guys that never went down that road? Yeah. You know, I think my stance is, and I haven't given it a lot of thought, but 
I think it should be a little more difficult to get your amateur status back than it is today. Um, you know, if somebody's, you know, had web.com experience and, uh, done well or, uh, whatever the scenario, uh, and I, I don't, I don't feel like I was a successful professional player, but you're, you're absolutely I do feel right. Like there is a distinction between, Hey, you know, well, no, no. And this isn't directed at you. This is just in general. There's a big difference between someone that played a couple of years of mini tours right out of college and versus someone that really, this was their livelihood for 10 or 15 years. And, and you know, that there is a big difference. And I, I would agree with that. I don't know. I don't know how you get to that, uh, you know, qualifying event of determining who's, you know, what that eligibility process or reinstatement process is like. But I do think depending on someone's tenure playing professionally uh, and their success, that should probably dictate the, the period of time that they have to wait. Well, you're the, you're going to be the president. You have two years to figure this out. So, um, you know, as a sidebar, um, Mr. Nicholas, we just inducted him into the FSGA Hall of Fame along with Barbara. Uh, he did ask, he did ask, uh, if he could regain his amateur status back. And I told him we would take a look at it. Okay. Uh, I mean, that would be hysterical just to do. Um, but that's why I'm not allowed to be in charge to make these decisions. I would, I would see, I would do that, but then he has to commit to a full schedule of like senior mid-am events and just use it as a marketing ploy for the FSGA. Yeah. He asked if there was an over 75 age division and, um, we would certainly create we'll one for him. Create one. Yeah. It's, it's fine. So that would be hysterical. Well, I got just a couple other questions that uh, these are just kind of random questions that we always ask uh, to all the guests, and uh, it's, it's just a quick bucket of, uh, of questions. So let's see here. We have Jack's victory. I think I know how you're going to go with this. but uh, So this question is Jack's master's victory in 1986 versus the fifth green jacket of Tiger Woods. Obviously hasn't happened yet, but which victory would be the the bigger one, and uh, uh, which one would you choose, Tiger's fifth or Jack and eighty six? Jack and eighty six. Yeah, you're you're a Nicholas guy. I'm a Nicholas guy too. So, yeah, but uh, but it's very interesting. A lot of people have different uh, different responses to that one. All right, before we let you out of here, you got to answer just one final question. You can give a major championship to anyone in history, alive or dead. No majors, 18 majors, anyone you want to. Who gets the major? Ben, I'm going to give it to you, buddy. No, you can't give it to me. You got to give it to a, a golfer. You can't give it to me. I, no, 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 no. I'm not letting you off the hook that easy. I give it to a golfer. So I've struggled with this, Ben. Uh, I'm going to give it to my dad. He, he loved the game and, uh, I think, uh, actually, you know what? Give it to my mom and dad. Is that possible? Yeah, I think we could do that. We can let you give a couple majors to your parents. Uh, who am I to come between that? All right, mom, mom and dad. I got I got to keep it in the family. They, they're the ones that uh, supported me through everything. And my mom's a huge sports fan. And um, dad got me into the game. But mom's uh, mom sort of supported me all the way through, got me to tournaments, all that stuff. So we'll keep it in the family. All right. Well, Steve, really appreciate the time. Um, we will definitely catch up. I look forward to seeing all the, the uh, things you're going to do for the FSG in the next two years. And uh, 
I'm sure we're going to play a lot of golf together. So thanks for being a guest on the back of the range and we'll catch up soon. All right. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. And there you have it. Another great episode here at the back of the range golf podcast. Special thanks to Steve Carter, president of the Florida State Golf Association for spending some time with us to discuss his playing career and everything he has going on with the FSGA. Don't forget, follow us on Instagram. I have a couple announcements coming up very soon about some upcoming guests. If you have any questions, feel free to shoot me an email, ben at thebackoftherange.com. In the meantime, have a great week. We'll see you next time here at the Back of the Range.